We just heard a story about Mexican-Americans who, by law, were U.S. citizens, but who didn't enjoy the same civil liberties as others. But what if you were living in the U.S. and weren't even allowed to become a citizen? What if you had to endure discrimination because of your ethnicity and were denied a chance for naturalization? That was the struggle of Chinese people living in the United States for decades. The Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882 was one of the first major laws regulating immigration in the United States. It barred immigration for Chinese laborers and declared the Chinese ineligible for citizenship. The statute was set to last only 10 years, but it was renewed several times in the late 19th and early 20th century, and each iteration amped up the law's provisions. For example, in 1892, the Geary Act mandated that all Chinese living in the United States have a certificate of residence that they carry with them at all times. This was just one instance of the American government basically telling the Chinese, you are not wanted. There was a lot of fear. Uh, a lot of it was very rational. But I would say the, the labor was certainly um, one aspect, one very, very important aspect. But a lot of it was also this concern about overall, do, are the Chinese fit or unfit as a race to be included in the American nation? Mary Liu is a professor of American Studies and History at Yale University. She's researched the effects of the Chinese Exclusion Act and why it was enacted in the first place. So one of the larger contextual ways to think about this is that this is also the period um, after the Civil War um, Reconstruction and already the, the nation has wrestled with this question of what to do with African-Americans in terms of citizenship. So having Chinese, Ameri Chinese suddenly show up in the United States in this period in larger and larger numbers um, really alarmed uh, politicians in terms of you know, thinking through, here we have yet another group that we now have to decide, are they fit or unfit um, for inclusion? And even before the Chinese Exclusion Act is passed in 1882, Chinese were deemed as racially unfit because of the uh, provisions in the 1790 Rule of Naturalization that states very clearly, in order to be eligible to be a citizen of the United States, one had to be a so-called free white person. And so there was a case right before 1882, the case of In Re Ayup in 1878, where Ayup tried to um, gain citizenship as um, uh, by claiming that he should qualify under the free white persons clause. So it really challenged this question of, you know, what to categorize the Chinese. And you can see in that decision, uh, Ayup doesn't win. He doesn't get uh, citizenship. And free white persons is understood as not um, including the Chinese. Other court cases challenged the exclusion laws and helped shape the conversation around who gets to be an American citizen. Most famously, the case of Tape versus Hurley in 1885. It tells the story of Mary and Joseph Tape, who came to San Francisco from China before the passage of the Chinese Exclusion Act. We believe they came in the 1860s. They were married in 1875. And what's really interesting about them is that Mary was raised by missionaries. Um, she really didn't associate with many Chinese people from what we know of her. Um, whereas Joseph uh, Tape it came from China and, and 
definitely spoke Cantonese, and so he blended more with the uh, the Chinese population in San Francisco of that period. So we know about the Tape family because they tried to enroll their daughter Mamie Tape in the all-white Spring Valley School. So at the time, there was actually already a Chinese school that um, Chinese children were told they had to go to. But because Joseph and Mary Tape were already what we would consider um, fully acculturated Chinese Americans in this period, they did not want to enroll their children into the Chinese school and instead chose to put them in the all-white Spring Valley School. However, the school refused um, to let Mamie come to the school, and so the tapes sued the school district and won. Um, and the case basically guaranteed the rights of children born to Chinese parents to a public education. However, um, the San Francisco School District decided to set up a separate Chinese primary school and, in, you know, and really push um, for the children to go there. So basically, you're seeing what we come to know as separate but equal that happens um, later with the 1896 Plessy v. Ferguson case. But you're seeing this being played out here in 1885 in San Francisco. So, you know, Mary Tape ends up writing this scathing letter that gets published where she really um, indicts the whole system of, of basically being racist and, and taking it all out on this poor, her daughter, her, her eight-year-old child. And the anger is very, very clear in the letter in terms of her frustrations, her disappointment. Um, and she says she, you know, she will never, ever, ever send her children to the Chinese school. Never. To the Board of Education. Dear sirs, I see that you're going to make all sorts of excuses to keep my child out of the public schools. Will you please tell me, is it a disgrace to be born a Chinese? Didn't God make us all? What right have you to bar my child out of the school because she is of Chinese descent? There is no other worldly reason that you could keep her out except that. You have expended a lot of the public money foolishly, all because of one poor little child. I will let the world see, sir, what justice there is when it is governed by the race of prejudiced men. So the letter is, is very well known, and, and this is probably the reason why we know the Tape family the most. As you can see the anger and frustration, um, especially for Chinese who I think came prior to the exclusion era and then suddenly see all these doors closing, not just for themselves, but for their children. And then in the end, where does Mamie end up going to school? Well, um, despite Mary saying, never, never, never will I send my daughter to your school, Five days later, uh, the school actually opens, the Chinese school opens, and um, Frank and Mamie are actually two of the first students to enroll in the school. Hmm. And it's a pretty profoundly sad moment um, because you can certainly imagine for the tapes who had, I'm sure, high hopes for where their children would go, given the opportunities that they themselves had, that is, uh, Joseph and Mary, I think mm -hmm. they probably imagined anything was possible for their American-born children. And instead, they felt the only way to give their children any kind of education was then to send them to the Chinese school. Wow. Wow. So that's that's obvious, <laughs> obvious exclusion of one kind, but I'm, I'm assuming particularly in the case of the Chinese laborers, um, it, it, I would assume almost that there had to be some moments really that their safety was threatened. Yeah. So this is 
This is one of the things that um, we definitely spend a lot of time talking about in the field of Asian American history is the the enormous amount of anti-Asian violence that that occurred throughout this period in the 19th century and early 20th century. And that kind of violence goes you know, well before the Chinese Exclusion Acts are even passed. So uh, in many places in California, there's many um, examples of of just outright clashes and um, and fights that break out between Chinese workers and, and white workers. I think you go from that where you're talking about individual workers or, or groups of workers to then seeing the state, um, in this case the federal government, as then clearly not only not offering protection, but then is the agent of causing uh, harm. Probably the most... Um, well-known example of that is in Rock Springs, Wyoming, when when Chinese miners um, are brutally attacked um, by white miners. Um, in in this case, where um, again Chinese end up um, losing their lives, they are um, injured, they they lose their belongings, their homes, um, and eventually are expelled um, from the area of Rock Sp- Springs. And I think what happens is that. Um, Ordinary folks begin to think that it's it's that kind of violence may actually be okay um, because the state has already deemed the Chinese as unacceptable and not a part of us and will never be a part of the American polity. So, so we've talked about the the Tape versus Hurley case uh, as one case that's really kind of challenging or testing the boundaries of the Chinese Exclusion Act, but I understand there's also United States versus Wong Kim Ark as well that was challenging the provision. So tell us a little bit about that case. Sure. So the U.S. versus Wong Kim Ark case occurred in um, the late 1890s, and it was decided by the Supreme Court in 1898. And basically, it's the, the case that we have that finally settles that anyone born in the United States um, receives American citizenship. And it's until then, it's actually somewhat unclear, even though in the 14th Amendment, um, it's very clear. It says, you know, all persons born or naturalized um, in the United States are subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. So I think the question then for for Chinese, because of the Exclusion Act, there was the question of, well, what do you do with a group of people who've been deemed undesirable and not uh, allowed to immigrate to the United States? Do do they have the right of citizenship? And so the story is, is that Wong Kim Ark was born in San Francisco in 1873. Both of his parents were Chinese. Uh, the family took a trip to China, and on return to the United States in a year later, in 1895, they were refused landing. And the customs officials at the time um, refused landing on the grounds that he was of Chinese descent and thereby denied the right to enter the United States. Um, but of course, he said, well, but I was born in the United States. I am a citizen. So Wong Kim Ark appealed his case, and it traveled all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court, and by the vote of six to two, the Supreme Court justices ruled in favor of Wong Kim Ark's petition. And again, it was based on the 14th Amendment that um, really protected 
the rights of people born in the United States um, and, and their claims to citizenship. So that's the case that, um, that was indeed a victory that was very much celebrated by Chinese Americans that showed that uh, if, there, if one's children was born in the United States, one can claim citizenship, even though the parents, the immigrant generation, would never be able to make that claim under exclusion. Hmm. I have to confess that as we are sort of unraveling this story, I hear a victory and I think, yay, <laughs> there's an actual victory. <laughs> right. There is an actual victory. Yes. I mean, it's very difficult because one can argue, and historians have certainly argued this, while, yes, uh, Chinese Americans during the exclusion era could claim citizenship, um, one had to ask, was this a full citizenship mm. was, or was this a second-class citizenship? And that is very difficult to answer because mm. the, the shadow of exclusion was indeed very, very long, and it certainly didn't protect them from race-based exclusion, from residential segregation, for example. Um, Wong Kim Ark's descendants were trying to, if they stayed in the state of California and tried to purchase a home, let's say, in an all-white neighborhood that happened to have restrictive covenants, they would not have been eligible, despite the fact that they are clearly American citizens. So these are things that are very difficult. So, so yes, 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 I would certainly say, yay, there was a victory. <laughs> but, but. but unfortunately, <laughs> yeah. we have to sort of take another step and, and think about, well, what kind of victory is right. this? Because right. it, it doesn't fully guarantee um, the kind of um, the full citizenship that one would want. What do you think that these kinds of discriminatory laws that we're talking about here, the Chinese Exclusion Act and others, um, what do you think they really say about American concepts of citizenship as they're being defined and redefined and broadened and shrunk and everything else that's going on throughout American history? I mean, certainly what is so interesting is you have something as basic as the 1790 rule of naturalization, that begins with three very clear words, free white persons. Mm -hmm. And while that might seem very evident and, you know, that there's not much to debate there, it certainly ends up becoming something that's debated again and again. And what that tells me is that the notions of race and citizenship have to be made and remade, have to be full, always constructed and supported. Right, right. They don't work on their own. And what that also tells me is that generations can, in American history have challenged those, those notions. Um, whether they've succeeded or not, you know, that, that's one thing. But certainly I think it shows us just how unstable um, that category of white privilege and citizenship um, has been. That other, in other words, if it was stable and fixed and finite, it would have just been the one um, rule of naturalization in 1790, and we were, we would be done now. Right. Um, but thankfully, that is not the case. <laughs> yes. and instead, we we have seen the possibilities and the ways in which the law can be both um, a means of empowerment and social change, as much as it can be um, a means of real profound restriction. Mary Lou is Professor of History and American Studies at Yale University. <laughs>